Happy Sabbath, brethren. Good afternoon. Hope everyone is feeling well. Well, brethren, 20 years ago today, you all know what today is. Today is the anniversary of um, uh, 9-11. It is 9-11, 20 years ago today. Uh, at this time, at about 2 o'clock in the afternoon, I'm sure everyone in this room, everyone in most countries of the world, if they weren't asleep, knew what had actually happened. We were at war. Eleven days ago, our President Biden pulled out the last of the U.S. troops from Afghanistan uh, in a very um, tragic situation that happened as they were doing that. Then two days ago, he kind of declared war again, except he did it to the people of the United States. He declared war on the unvaccinated. Now, there are sure a lot of negative situations that are happening. Those are a couple of them right there. I mean, it's happening every day all over the earth. Situations that you and I wish we could do something about. When we see something like that, if only they had asked us about how to deal with this. Or if only they had asked somebody who knows God's way of life about that. Um, if there's something that we could do, you know, when we hear or read these situations that, you know, that we could, that could stop the fighting, that could stop the distress, the violence, the crime that's going on everywhere. But brethren, we understand, um, we do, we understand that it's not going to get better. It's only going to get worse. It's going to get worse and worse and worse. Because this is not what God, God's plan is right now. God does have a plan, though, and a plan for you, a plan for me, to deal specifically with the situations that we see going on right now. So let's talk about that. First slide, please. I thought I'd start out with some nice flowers um, on this September 11th, 2021, to start out. And this is looking towards the future. Um, but if you would turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. We have been here many times before. We're going to look at these very familiar verses that we've gone over probably hundreds of times in our lives. Each one of these, and these are the Beatitudes that Jesus Christ spoke. Each one of these Beatitudes are descriptions. They are character traits. Some are actual fruits of the Holy Spirit, which each and every one of us should have or be known as having. It should be a part of our life. And the reward, it, it, and the reward also is along with each one of these traits. So let's go ahead and, and read beginning in verse 1 of Matthew 5, verses 1. We're going to read all the way down to verse 12. Matthew 5, verse 1. And see in the multitudes... He, Jesus Christ, went up on the mountain, and when he was seated, his disciples came to him. Verse 2, then he opened his mouth, and they taught him, and, and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Brethren, are you poor in spirit? Do people know you by this? When they think of you, do they think of someone who is poor in spirit? Blessed are those who mourn for they will be, shall be comforted. Do people know you as someone who would mourn when, when it's the time to mourn? Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, 
for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Are we merciful? Are we known as being a merciful person? Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Very important to be pure in heart. Do we go before God every day and ask for forgiveness? Wipe the slate clean. Do we do that? Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. And then it gets hard. The next three are hard. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Are we persecuted yet? Do we feel that heat coming on? Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you, against you falsely for my name. Is that happening yet? And then in verse 12, rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. All of these things should be a part of who we are. Each and every one of these beatitudes is a description of, of character traits that each and every one of us should have and be known for as having. Today, on this 20th anniversary of 9-11, I'd like to focus my split sermon on verse 9. Verse 9, blessed are the peacemakers. Next slide, please. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God, or the sons of God. That's what we want to be called. We want to be called the sons of God, the children of God. And that involves being a peacemaker. When you and I look at this verse, when we look at this verse, we can come up with many different questions out of this one verse here. You know, the world looks at this verse, those who are familiar with it, and they, they see something that maybe we're not, we don't see. Many different questions can come up when you see this. For example, what is a peacemaker? There is a good definition. There are many definitions of what this is. How do you become a peacemaker? What are the qualities you could say are of peacemakers in this world today? Our great God is very specific and clear in his word about what a true peacemaker is and what they should do, what they should be doing. On the other hand, in this world, there's no clear path. There's no clear path to what a peacemaker really is. The world has come up with many different ways to, of trying to make peace with each other. For millennia, they have tried to do this. They have a variety of different philosophies that they have used over the centuries in trying to bring people together so that there won't be strife between man and his brother. So today what we're gonna do is we're gonna start by looking at a few examples of the world's view of what a peacemaker is and should be. This is the world's view. And then what we're gonna do is look at God's, what God says are true, peacemaker, true peacemakers and what they should be doing. So brethren, there's a first time for everything. There's a first time for everything. For me, I remember the first time that I read this scripture was, uh, I was a young man, I was about 20 years old. And the intent was for me to learn what was going on here, uh, to, of learning God's way of life. He was calling me, and I was reading everything that I could, and I, and I read this, and I didn't know exactly what he meant. 
What is he talking about? There was a conflict that came up in my mind when I read this. Um, you see, I had not grown up in the church. Um, and the term peacemaker to me had a very different connotation. It meant something completely different to me because I had heard the word peacemaker before. But and when I read this verse, this came flashing back to my mind. One way I saw this word peacemaker, you see, when I grew, when I grew up, I grew up in the 1960s and 70s and 80s, and I really loved wa watching old Western movies, as I'm sure a lot of you in this room have and did, and maybe still do today. I loved watching John Wayne. I loved watching him, you know, kind of stagger with his hands like this, and, and uh, he had, you know, he just walked in, and the way he talked and all his mannerisms. I used to do, I used to walk into the kitchen with my mom and order some flapjacks, mama, would you? And today, I, I kind of sound like Elvis Presley, but I don't want to do that, so I'm sorry if I offended you John Wayne fans. The one thing that I saw in almost every Western movie that I can think of was the sidearm that every cowboy carried with him in the movie. Next slide, please. In 1873, Samuel Colt developed a repeating firearm for the US Army called the M1873. It was also sold to civilians at an affordable price of $17. What a bargain. And it was useful in many different areas. I mean, what we see in the movies is not typically what was going on in the Old West. Um, it, be, it was very useful to the cowboy out on the range. It became an essential tool that he carried with him. Uh, there were many different dangers out on the trail. And this is where the conflict came into my mind because this sidearm was given a very famous nickname. Next slide, please. It was called the Peacemaker. When I read this scripture, Matthew 5, 9, this is the first thing that came to my mind. You can think about that. It made me sad because of the human reasoning behind or the philosophy behind the, giving a name to something of that nature. It was called a peacemaker because of a very obvious reason. Um, the idea is that a larger, stronger, younger, more brutish man or woman or boy who has a decent sidearm at his side is equal to a man who is much larger. It was, called, it was called an equalizer. It was a great equalizer. This was the view of many men and women in 1873. And it's a, very, it's a view of many men and women today. This is how you make peace. In the Old West frontier where people were scattered and a lawman was never very near, violence, thievery, law-breaking was prevalent everywhere, everywhere you went. If a man's intent to do evil was there, there was no other man to stop it. If, you're, if, you, if there's no other person within 20 miles of you and your family, what do you do? Well, they would pray to God for safety, and they would keep the peacemaker close by. 
Another way that the word peacemaker came to my mind, and this is before I even learned about anything that God really wanted me to learn about what a peacemaker was. So when I was in elementary school, I became intrigued by history. I used to go to the library and I'd get all these history books. My mom and dad bought me an Encyclopedia Britannica. And people would joke, my friends would joke, they would come over and I would be reading in the encyclopedia. I just wanted to know about history. And we only had two or three channels on the TV too. And if it was raining, that's where I'd go. I would be inside reading a book uh, or reading the encyclopedia. One topic of interest was the First and the Second World Wars. What led to these catastrophic wars? Um, strategy, invention, tactics. That was very enticing to me. Next slide, please. How many of you know who this man is? Mr. Horch, or Mr. Mr. Burnett, you're excluded from this one. He's the only one who knew who this was. Who knows? One, two, three. Three of you, okay. At one time, and for a very short time, this man was the most famous peacemaker on earth. Next slide, please. How about this one? How many of you know who this is now? A lot more, okay. This is Arthur Neville Chamberlain. He was a British prime minister from May 1937 to May 1940. Hitler had threatened to unleash a European war unless the Sudetenland, which is an area of German, ethnic German land in Czechoslovakia, um, was surrendered to Germany. He said, I'm going to go to war unless you give me this land. On September 29th and 30th of 1938, Germany, Italy, Great Britain, and France signed the Munich Agreement by which Czechoslovakia must surrender that land and then it would be occupied by German the Germans on October 1st. The following is the wording of a printed statement that Neville Chamberlain waved as he stepped off of the plane on September 30th, 1938, after the conference had ended. And I'm going to go ahead and read a couple of paragraphs of the letter, what he's holding in his hand. And he said, We, the German Fuhrer and Chancellor, and the British Prime Minister, have had a further meeting today and are agreed in recognizing that the question of Anglo-German relations is of the first importance for our two countries and for Europe. We regard the agreement signed last night and the Anglo-German Naval Agreement as symbolic of the desire of our two peoples never to go to war with one another again. Next slide, please. Then a couple of days later, Mr. Chamberlain read the above statement in front of 10 Downing Street, and he said this. My good friends, for the second time in our history, a British prime minister has returned from Germany bringing peace with honor. I believe it is peace for our time. And that's the most famous quote right there. Go home and get a nice quiet sleep. Now, brethren, I really wonder if you really believe what he said there. In Britain, the Munich Agreement was greeted with jubilation. People were so glad that they had averted war. However, Winston Churchill, uh, he was kind of on the outs uh, with the government at that time, 
described what had just happened as an unmitigated disaster. The policy of appeasement is one way for peace for several reasons. Um, and the people of Great Britain looked at it this way. They were desperate to avo avoid the slaughter of another world war. They had suffered a lot. But despite his promise of no more territorial demands in Europe, Hitler was undeterred by this appeasement. And in March 1939, he violated the Munich Agreement and he occupied the rest of Czechoslovakia. Six months later, in September 1939, six months later after they signed this agreement, agreement, Germany invaded Poland, and then the whole agreement was just thrown up in the air, and Britain was now at war. Neville Chamberlain was what the world would call a peacemaker. The policy of appeasement as a strategy for peace is alive and well today, and we can see it in American politics or European politics. It's everywhere. It's very popular. But someone always gets thrown under the bus. Someone always has to pay the price, and most of the time it's in blood. One more example. Um, another example that came to my mind when I read Matthew 5, verse 9. Again, when I was growing up, before my calling and before I came into God's way of life, there was a mystery in my family. There was a mystery involving my father. He had joined the United States Air Force shortly after the Korean War. Uh, it had broken out. We had pictures in, in albums of my father when he first went in. Um, uh, on the island of Okinawa with some of his buddies uh, driving Jeeps. Um, my father was an air policeman on the island, and so he got to drive a Jeep all around and try to break up fights and stuff like that. He would always... You know, we would ask him what, what else he did, because he was in the, the Air Force for 12 years. We'd always ask him what he did, and he would always give us a generic answer to the question, and he would never really get specific about any of it. And then he would change the subject. When I was 18 years old, a package came in the mail, addressed to my dad from the Department of Defense. And it was a thick package. Uh, it, it felt... I, I'm the one who received it, and it felt like it was full of, you know, documents. And so what I did was my dad was at work at the time, so I placed it on the table next to the door, and then I went on my merry way that day. And Saturday rolls around, Saturday evening, the next day, and uh, I'm walking out to the front yard, and I look over, and I see it. It's on the floor next to the table, and I, I forgot to give it to him. So... Um, I picked it up real quick, and I ran out. My dad is cooking steaks out on the back porch, um, and I handed it to him, and I said, look, Dad, look, it's from the Department of Defense. And, and I was real excited. I wanted him to open it up. He looked at me, it was kind of a sigh, and just set it down. Set it down next to the plate with the steaks. And he didn't say anything about it. So I took the cue, and then I went back in the house and helped my mom set the table for dinner. The next morning, I got up, um, and he was sitting at the coffee table, drinking his coffee, and he was going through the, the pages of this document. And so that was my chance. So I sat down and asked him, what, what's in there? What is this? And he began to tell me that this was every job that he had while he was in the Air Force. It was a long list, and now it was all unclassified.
He was sent to Carswell Air Force Base, trained to be an engineer on a B-36 bomber. Next slide, please. They flew scheduled missions from Carswell Air Force Base all the way to Ellison Air Force Base in Alaska, nonstop. It was about, and there's about 13 hours up there and it's about 13 hours back. The B-36 is the largest mass-produced piston-engine aircraft ever made by the United States or any other country. It had the longest wingspan of any combat aircraft ever built. It was capable of delivering any of the nuclear weapons in the U.S. arsenal. As you probably already guessed, next slide please. It's called the Peacemaker. How ironic. One of my father's jobs on the aircraft was an engineer. He was very mechanically inclined and he would fix things that went on in the aircraft if they happened to break or needed fixing on the trip. But his main responsibility was to assist one of the flight officers in arming the 15 megaton weapons that they always carried from Carswell to Alaska. He was in the Strategic Air Command. And what their job was basically, after the first strike of the, of the Russians at the time, they were the second strike capability. This is how they determined that they could win a nuclear war. They kept an aircraft in the air, or they kept aircraft in the air all the time. After the first strike, then they could go and mop it up. My father was at the tip of the spear of the policy, the peace policy of deterrence, or MAD, Mutually Assured Destruction, that the US and the Soviet Union played out in the 1950s, 60s, and 70s. If you would, turn with me to Isaiah chapter 59. Isaiah chapter 59. Brethren, the world has come up with many different ways to have peace they believe is the best way to true and lasting peace. I just gave you three. Are we as a church or individually supposed to march in the streets with signs begging our leaders to be less mean to each other? Uh, should we travel to Washington or Kabul or Afghanistan or China? Uh, convince world leaders that to change their evil ways? Just try to get along? Um, should we strap on that Colt 45 and just dare anybody to break the peace on our block? Or should we demand that we have the most nuclear weapons of any nation? Every, and when every nation is weaker and afraid to mess with us, when we have crushed their will to fight, then we will have peace? That's a philosophy that the world has right now. What does God's word say about all that? So let's go ahead and what a, what a peacemaker is. What does God's word say about this way of being a peacemaker? Isaiah chapter 59, verse 1. We're going to read all the way down through verse 8. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, nor is ear heavy that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have separated you from God, and your sins have hidden his face from you, so that he will not hear. For your hands are defiled with blood, and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips 
have spoken lies and your tongue has muttered perversity. That's the world we live in right there. No one calls for justice, nor does any plead for truth. They trust in empty words and speak lies. They conceive evil and bring forth iniquity. Verse 5, they hatch viper's eggs and weave spider's webs. He who eats of their eggs dies, and from that which is crushed, a viper breaks out. It's, just, it's a circle, it's a cycle of destruction all the time. Their webs will not become garments, nor will they cover themselves with their works. Their works are works of iniquity, and, the, and acts of violence is in their hands. Their feet run to evil, and they make haste to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Wasting and destruction are in their paths. Then in verse 8, the way of peace they have not known. There is no justice in their ways. They have made themselves crooked paths. Whoever takes that way shall not know peace. Next slide, please. I thought we'd end on that portion with a nice, pleasant looking into the future of the sunset of this harvest here. Brethren, if God and his law and his ways are not at the foundation of any plan or not intimately involved in any plan for peace or reconciliation, it's going to fail. Mankind just does not know. So let's turn back to Matthew chapter 5, verse 9. Matthew chapter 5, verse 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. What is Jesus Christ trying to say here? What is he telling us when we read this verse? Everything I just gave you is false. That's not what this is. But there really is quite a lot of meaning, deeper meaning within these words. For, for us to understand. And it helps to magnify the words here. The word for peacemaker in Matthew chapter 5, verse 9, is the word arenopoios, arenopoios, G1518, if you want to look that up later. Arenopoios means peacemaker. When I started to study my Bible into this verse, when I was doing my Bible study for this split sermon, I found that this is the only instance this word is in the Bible. It's an adjective. It describes something. One definition of this word peacemaker is describing a person who brings about peace. Somebody who brings about peace by reconciling ad adversaries. By reconciling adversaries. We tend to think of a peacemaker is as like a broker between warring countries or between peoples or groups, you know, physical conflict that's going on. But is this the primary meaning that Jesus Christ is trying to tell us? You know, that he had in his mind when he said it? Every time Christ did anything, even in the physical, when he was dealing with physical matters, it was always the spiritual aspect that he was really thinking about, that he was concerned about. So turn with me over to Colossians chapter 1, verse 19. Colossians 1, verse 19. And we're going to look at another word for peacemaker. Colossians 1, verse 19. We're going to read 19 and 20 here. For it pleased the Father that in him, in Jesus Christ, all the fullness should dwell. And then in verse 20, we read this. And by him... 
to reconcile all things to himself by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood on his cross, of his cross. And in verse 21, and you who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled. So this is a little bit different take or meaning of what a peacemaker is. The Greek word translated peace here is a noun form of the word we just read in Matthew 5, verse 9. It's only mentioned one time in the Bible here. It's erinopoieo, and that is G1517, if you want to look that up later. Notice that in verse 20, Jesus is the peacemaker. In verse chapter, uh, Matthew chapter 5, verse 9, he is talking to us as peacemakers. But in this verse, Jesus Christ is the peacemaker, the maker of spiritual peace, the maker of spiritual wholeness or reconciliation. Brethren, by his atonement, he produces reconciliation between those who were alienated from each other. It does not mean here that he had effected actual peace. When, when this was written, when Christ died, he was resurrected and he's at the right hand of God, peace didn't just break out all over the earth at that time. A lot of people will, will take this and they will say those kind of things. It didn't mean that he actually affected peace on this earth at that time for the, the entire earth. But what he had done was laid the foundation for it. He is our peace. He had done which would secure peace. By his blood shed on the cross, that blood making atonement for sin, the means of making reconciliation between God and mankind. That's what he's talking about. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. The relationship between God and mankind is what is broken. That's where the war truly lies. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 11, and we're going to read down to verse 18. Therefore, remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who were called uncircumcision by what is called uncircumcision, or by what's called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands. Now, brethren, I was, this was me. I was not in the church at one point. A lot of you were born in the church, raised in the church. Um, but, there's, but there's a time when God calls us that we, there's a change that takes place. The verse 12, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace. He laid the foundation at his death and resurrection for peace reconciliation between God and man. That's the kind of peace that he's talking about. Who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation. Verse 15. Having abolished in his flesh the enmity that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace. And that he might reconcile them both to God in the body through the cross, thereby, thereby putting the death, the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you 
who are far off and to those who are near. And then in verse 18, for through him we both have access by one spirit to the Father. Jesus Christ laid down his life. He, he made the atonement to make peace between God and mankind. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. What is our part, brethren? How do we live according to Matthew 5, verse 9? Turn with me over to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 21. We're going to go ahead and read verse 17 all the way down to verse 21. Therefore, brethren, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. What are we supposed to be doing now, brethren? We're living in this time of this ministry of reconciliation. God is not calling this world. He's calling you and me and only a very few at this time. In verse 19, it, that is that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them as he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. In the verse 20, now then, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. How do we become peacemakers? We have to be reconciled to God. We have to be in a state of reconciliation with God. Verse 21, for he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Brethren, our primary responsibility is to be in a state of reconciliation with God. Peace with God. That's what he's asking for us to do right now. Now, we are ambassadors for Christ now. We must be pursuers of godly peace, living God's way of life, doing our part in preaching the gospel at this time. We don't know if our example, as an ambassador to Christ, we don't know if our example of living God's way will affect someone to be reconciled with God in this life. Uh, all, all we can do is what we can do. He doesn't want us out on the streets. He doesn't want us trying to make peace with the world because we know that's just not going to work. That's not what he's called us to do right now. What he's called us to do right now is to be reconciled with him, to be making peace and be in a state of peace with him all the time. Ultimately, our job of being a peacemaker will begin when Jesus Christ returns, sets up his kingdom, when all things are put under his feet, when God's spirit will be available to all mankind, everyone will have an opportunity for true reconciliation with God. Right now, that just won't happen. You know, between God and mankind, they can begin this process of, of reconciliation, and we will be there to help facilitate all of that. That's what our job is now. Be reconciled to God. Be at peace with God. When all things are put under his feet, 
So brethren, being a peacemaker between man and God is exactly what we will be known for in the kingdom of God. One more scripture. Isaiah chapter 52, verse 7. And I'll just go ahead and read this. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who proclaims peace, who brings glad tidings of good things, who proclaims salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. God delights in those who reconcile others to himself. If we have an opportunity to do that, then we should. Those who bring the gospel, gospel are called beautiful. Those who bring reconciliation to broken relationships, and we can have opportunity to do that too, are carrying on the work of Jesus Christ now, but ultimately it is going to be in the future. You know, we'll be carrying on the work of Jesus Christ, who is the Prince of Peace. Those who give themselves as Jesus did in order that others may know God are going to be called blessed. And those who bring the wonderful message of God's peace to the world are peacemakers, and Jesus calls them the children of God.